Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about our last episode, discussing how people's consumer and personal finances might change during this time and how you can make personal savings. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or as always on the Go Loud app. And you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be looking at the change in living accommodation and in particular in urban areas. Everything from new home sizes to rental accommodation and perhaps as the COVID pandemic may be changed how you want to live. We'll be discussing rental properties a little bit later on in the programme. But joining me first to discuss today is um, Orla Hegarty, who's an architect and assistant professor of the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at UCD. Orla, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. Well, if you think houses are are getting smaller that's because they probably are new homes completed so far this year are almost a third smaller than the equivalent property 10 years ago and the central statistics office findings point to a move towards higher density living orla hegarty joining us on the program orla is this the case are houses actually getting much smaller good morning um yes uh, our, our typical house size has been has been shrinking and, and that's to do with i suppose um, not that people want smaller houses or not that they've got um, proportionately more expensive. It's got to do with developers looking to uh, maximise everything and the government in some cases, particularly around apartments, having reduced uh, standard sizes. So uh, people will, I think a lot of people maybe didn't think about this too much until the last couple of months and, and they've been at home so much. People are really re-evaluating both the, the space they have and, and the amenities they have. You know, what's what's close to home? What can you get to easily? Um, and then when you're at home, do you have space for everybody to, you know, have a, some privacy in the house? Um, can you have space to work at home and to uh, not have to take your work off the kitchen table every mealtime? Do you have space for children and their toys and, you know, the kind of activities that are needed for younger children to be moving around? Uh, and I think a lot of people maybe ha- have thought carefully about that. And then so many people have been walking around their own neighbourhoods maybe and, and thinking about things differently and really appreciating their access to, to parks or maybe the shops are close by. And, and, and looking at for, for those different types of amenities. Um, it's interesting when we talk about the homes that are being built and, and the, the change in the density of the property. When we talk about homes, that's not just houses as we'd know them. That, that's apartments as well. And even anecdotally too, Orla, I think when people go in, and, and I'm certainly at that stage where people are going and they're looking at properties, when you see an apartment today versus one that might have been built 20 years ago, there is often a very obvious size differential in those properties. There is, yes. And, and we also, um, we haven't seen that many of them yet, but um, in the last couple of years, the requirement for a balcony, for example, was removed from uh, build to rent and social housing. Now, um, I think that's been hugely, that if they're built, would be hugely detrimental to people. Uh, but also a lot of um, lifts uh, and were dropped from apartments uh, down to the minimum. And I don't think people will find it acceptable now to be maybe queuing for a lift to get a child out to school in the morning uh, because of distancing or because they don't want to be overcrowded. Um, so I think some of those standards will definitely have to be to be revisited now. Um, but you can see that there is a difference. I mean, um, sizes have shrunk. And, and, you know, even to take the example of a three-bedroom semi, which a lot of people would have 
mm. it would live in that, you know, a huge proportion of Irish people would live in that type of, of, of house. Um, the, the, the three bedroom semi that was built in, in the 1960s um, or 1970s maybe we had four or five children in the three bedroom house and people shared bedrooms and it was more common and there was one bathroom. Um, it's, you can't really compare that to a three bed that's been built now, which people would think would be appropriate maybe for two or three children. Uh, but it might have, uh, you know, two and a half bathrooms. Uh, but the rooms might be much, much smaller and it might be hard to have more than one or two children sharing a bedroom. I'm just interested in, in what actually can be built at the moment. I mean, if, if a developer is coming along and they're building a private development, um, in terms maybe in particular of kind of those more duplex houses or apartment building, um, in terms of the building regulations around what they can actually build, particularly in terms of the size and the height of it. Well, I, if we start really at May at the top, I mean, everybody knows that sprawl is a problem. Everybody knows that Dublin just can't keep expanding out where people have very few amenities and spend all day in their cars trying to get to work. Um, so longer term policy is for more compact cities. And what that means is that people live, um, you know, there, there's more homes to the acre. Uh, and that means that more people can have uh, support shops locally, that more people can a good public transport service um, and once you start to uh, uh, take out all of those gaps in between houses uh, people can have much better quality of life uh, but if you take that to the extreme then you'll have people living in very dense high rise with no amenities so there's a there's a sweet spot in the minute in the middle which you might call sustainable density where people can have really pleasant homes and enough outdoor space but they also can have you know shops and parks and schools within 15 minutes or a bus service or decent cycle lanes so what we're after here is sustainable density, is that we don't keep sprawling into the Midlands. But the solution to that is not to build um, high-rise small apartments in the city. The solution to that is to build uh, what, what the Americans call the missing middle sometimes. It's what we don't do often enough, which is uh, terraced houses in some cases. And, and there are inner, uh, older suburbs in Dublin, places like Las Nevin and Ranelagh that have very quite sustainable densities, actually, with just housing. Um, small gardens and, and people living in terraces. Uh, and then the other side to that is to have apartments that may be close to the city might be four, five, six floors, which is sort of cost optimal. Um, and further out then might be infill in uh, on car park spaces or something else where you might have three or four or five floors. Now, development of that scale is generally very acceptable to the people who live in the locality. Um, and uh, it's it's a comfortable density. It fits easily within the tree lines of Dublin. Uh, and it's a sort of incremental growth and densification of the city. It doesn't mean clearing large parcels of, of parkland or sports fields um, to build you know, high towers. That's just a, a sort of mismatch of, of development. So if you think of it in, in those kind of incremental terms, I think people will see how that's how the city has grown in the past, um, that you start with uh, maybe cottages on an outlying village in in Blanchardstown or uh, somewhere like that. And then over time, it, it gradually grows up. Um, and then there's a point at which, you know, you have a, a, a decent density, but people have decent amounts of, of space to move around. Uh, and and that, that sort of settles for that area. So, you know, if we're looking at that, that's really what the City Council were trying to achieve, actually. And w- with higher density being encouraged in, in, in many cases, just in an effort to try and make better use of the available land and to kind of reduce that sprawl that many of our listeners would be very familiar with that often leads to kind of the long commute and the long congestion on a on a daily basis. Why is there, what's the objection to the higher density living? 
Well, I think there's a really uh, there's, a, there's a huge confusion about some of the language used here. When people who work in the build, built environment talk about sustainable density, they're talking about what I was describing, that people can live close enough together to have amenities and to have services. I think that term has been taken by developers and, and then used to justify overcrowding on sites. Now, you know, cramming too many units onto a site with hardly any amenities and no place space for children um, and no place for people to have balconies or to sit outdoors, uh, that's not density. You know, that's overcrowding. And, and that's what we need to prevent now. We don't need to build housing that is unhealthy for people. And, you know, it's funny, you might see more attention sometimes given to zoo animals and the impact of inadequate space and inadequate privacy um, and, and a lack of ability to socialise, um, you know, can have on, on the mental health in that situation. And we don't talk enough about how housing can really damage the mental health of people. You know, and that means it's daylight, it means sunlight, it means a view of, of nature and the sky. Um, it means having enough space that you're not disrupted by noise from your neighbours in too much proximity and the activity, you know, of, of smells and in other places, that you're not worried about fire safety in the building, that you can, you know, easily move up and down through the building if you have children, um, you're not queuing for lifts, um, or that, that you're not, you know, have your neighbours complaining that your children are, are making noise because you're cooked up and, and it's not a comfortable place to live. So, you know, I, I suppose when people think about the work of architects, sometimes they think it, it, it's, it's about the aesthetics of buildings and, you know, how they look. Uh, but it is all these factors, too. Okay. It's about how humans use buildings. Can I ask you about the, the changing trends in living accommodation? We probably now have more maybe um, single people or people that are living on their own in properties that, than maybe we might have had um, in, in, in years gone by. Yet we don't seem to have a lot of houses that are sort of catered for that kind of duplex purchaser or somebody that's maybe looking for a house with a little bit of a smaller garden and two bedrooms and yet it's not an apartment. Is there a reason for that? Well, I think sometimes it's to do with what is the most profitable is what gets built. And that's why I think we've two sweet spots at the moment for development, uh, or certainly before this crisis, one would have been the commuter belt. In fact, there were there were as many houses built in the NACE postcode um, last year as there were in Dublin City. Um, so that has definitely been a sweet spot for developers with three-bedroomed uh, kind of low-rise. Uh, and then the other one is has been uh, built to rent units in the city that are generally blocks of, of small apartments that are quite expensive. Um, um, but you're right, people want more variety and more of a mix. And, and I, I tend to avoid talking about apartments and houses as two different things because a well-designed community has a mix of both, actually. And, and you know, differentiating between somebody having a front door and the whole building and somebody having a front door and part of a building, um, you know, there isn't really mm. a clean in the line between uh, apartments and houses. And there's been, you know, and I'm thinking of particularly of one very uh, um, nice uh, project that's been uh, done in Norwich in the UK recently where uh, it is a mixture of both of those and it's actually a high density scheme but for for Irish people looking at it from the outside it looks like three-story houses with um, slightly higher two and three-story houses with slightly higher blocks on the corners of the street um, which gives apartments and it gives that variety for um, maybe single people or couples or, or downsizers um, but they're in the same community maybe as family housing next door they, they share the outside spaces uh, people maybe who are housebound when they're older uh, or have a disability can see the activity of children and people moving around during the day. And you get a mix of ages then and people can keep an eye on their neighbours. And, and that's the, the real strength of community. I think mm-hmm. we've all learned recently with 
you know, people bringing yeah. meals to neighbours and things like that. And I'm, I'm just curious, as just even on a personal um, viewpoint as well, Orla, about your, your opinion and how you think, or maybe it, it might not change, how the COVID-19 pandemic, will it change how houses are built, apartments are built and what might be coming available or what might come on stream now? Um, I, I think it'll have to. I mean, well, on one side, I think you'll have consumers looking, uh, thinking carefully about uh, how uncomfortable some of the apartments have been. And you'll have more people looking to uh, work from home where they can. We'll also have all of these key workers that we utterly reliant on. Um, the nurses, the people cleaning the hospitals, the people who are working in, in supermarkets. Um, they've been priced out of Dublin. I think we have to prioritise a key worker affordable housing after this. We can't run our cities without these people. Um, and they need to be able to live and afford to live in the city and not commute from the Midlands. Um, we'll also see change in work patterns. It, I, you know, I think you'll probably have uh, people working from home, but that means there might not be the same demand on, on uh, office space. Um, and uh, then there's all the technical side to it. We really have to revisit the regulations that took out cross-ventilation, that took out um, uh, sunlight and daylight requirements, that took out the balconies, um, put in adequate lifts. Uh, and then there's, there's things... I think people maybe had forgotten about in a generation, which is even materials like brass. Uh, traditionally, uh, brass door handles um, and push plates and taps were to do with infection. Um, uh, viruses don't last very long on those surfaces and they can live for days on some other surfaces. So there are things that were known in the past when the, when the TB hospitals were built about uh, daylight and fresh air. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we've been really reminded that we've maybe forgotten some of these things. Orla Hegarty, who's an architect and assistant professor at the School of Architecture and Planning at UCD. Orla, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the second part of News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. On this week's show, we're looking at the changes in living accommodation and in particular in urban areas. Everything from new home sizes to rental accommodation and asking has the COVID pandemic changed how we might want to live? Well, just this week, we had a new report out that showed that rents dropped by their biggest amount in 10 years last month. In April, they fell by 2.1% when compared to March. And for more on this, we're joined in the line by economist Ronan Lyons. Ronan, we'll talk in kind of general terms um, in terms of how living, rental living accommodation is working in Ireland. But just with regards to that recent report, is that drop, the largest drop in nearly a decade, is that down to COVID? Yeah, almost, almost certainly. Um, so, as, as your listeners will be well aware, rents, especially in the cities, um, had been rising for eight or nine years. They did level off uh, towards the end of 2019, um, but this, this fall between March and April they had risen, actually, between December and March. Um, and the fall between March and April is, is uh, almost certainly uh, COVID-19 related. It's hard to think of what else would be would be driving that. Um, and what you see, in, it, I mean, there has been quite a bit of discussion about the role that short-term lets are playing, um, because obviously that market has been uh, basically been taken away. Uh, so there have been a certain number of, of short-term lets moving over to the long-term rental market, especially in central Dublin. That potentially, if that were big enough, that that could cause rents to fall but what we're actually seeing is that's only really concentrated in central Dublin and central Galway and was relatively concentrated as well in the second half of March and early April so really what's driving the fall in rents is Covid's impact not on the supply of property but on the demand for property people can't 
uh, function in the in the housing market the way they normally would. People are losing their jobs and their incomes. And in that context, it's completely unsurprising to see rents fall and rents fall by such a, a large amount, given how much unemployment has risen in the last eight weeks. Just explain that to me, Ronan, because I understood that there was an eviction ban that had been put in place, which meant that if I lost my job and was unable to to pay my rent, that I couldn't be put out of the, the house that I'm that I am currently renting in a house share scenario. So I don't understand how have the rents actually fallen then? So these, so it's important to remember what the DAF report does and doesn't capture. So what it does capture is it captures market rent. It captures uh, a, a new tenancy, what will that tenancy, what, what's the landlord looking for? So it's a bellwether for conditions in the rental market. What it can't capture, and indeed what's very tricky for anyone to capture, is average rent for all tenants at any particular point in time. The CSO do have a survey on that that they use for various things. Um, but that, as you can imagine, is going to be significantly more slowly moving. Uh, rents are sticky when you're in a lease, both up and down. Um, but if you were in the situation of, of putting, if you're a landlord and you're putting a rental property up at the moment, you're going to change the rent to reflect what you think conditions in the market are. And that's what we're seeing at the moment, that for those who do have empty properties, for those landlords who have empty properties and they put them up on the market, could be because, for example, students have moved home um, or indeed uh, people who are not originally from Dublin or Cork or Galway have moved back to wherever family is ah, okay. because of what's going on. But that's that's what's driving that. Right. Okay. Well, that yeah. Okay. I understand. And and in terms of the, the those sort of short term lets that you talked about, I assume that doesn't take account of the students that you're talking about returning home. Is this the likes of the kind of the you know the one off maybe weekend holiday suppliers? That's right, yeah. So if you if you look at, say, Central Dublin, so Dublin uh, 1, 2, 7 and 8 in the, um, in the month from March 15th last year, um, there were about 400 properties per, per rent. This year, there were about 800. So almost a doubling of uh, the, the number of uh, properties being put up for rent. And that, that kind of Central Dublin effect is almost certainly down to, uh, down to uh, short-term lets, city breaks, that kind of market. And people see uh, people who own those properties see that that's um, not going to return anytime soon, so they switch over to the long-term rental market. But what I would say is that there's been quite a lot of discussion online about that. Um, it, it's certainly there. As, as, as you can see, this, for example, in Central Dublin, about twice as many rental listings in that initial month after uh, schools closed in particular. Um, but uh, it's, it's relatively small in the grand scheme of things. An extra four or 500 rental listings is about a week's worth of uh, demand in Dublin this season. Um, and the city is short between 50 and 70,000 rental homes. Uh, so you know, five or 700 moving over is about 1% of the solution. It certainly doesn't solve any of the underlying issues. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have any indication, Ronan, as to how many people are currently renting, for instance, we'll say in Dublin in the capital city at the moment? Do we, do we know how so, much of our market is made up by renters? Yeah, so if you think of, of Dublin as, as roughly half a million homes, um, then of or, or households, um, of those, uh, about a third are, are, are renters. And the vast majority of those are, are private market rental rather than social rental. The other two thirds split between you own it outright or you own it with, with a mortgage. Um, yeah, but roughly a third. And it's a little bit less in the rest of the country, a little bit higher mm. uh, if you go, say, central Dublin compared to suburban Dublin. But that's about, uh, about the, the fraction. So th- that's about a third of the people that are living in Dublin are renting a property because they, they don't own their own home. Are, are they long-term rents? 
So what we've seen is a typical tenancy length in Ireland used to be really short. So the typical tenancy length was between a year and a year and a half. Uh, about uh, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, that has drifted up considerably. Uh, so now it's a bit tough to measure. Um, the Residential Tenancies Bureau probably have good measure of this, but I haven't seen any public av- available data. But based on my own calculations, average tenancy length is about four years at the moment. Um, so it's more than doubled over the last uh, over the last decade or so. And now that you could probably still call that short compared to some other countries. Um, and and it's certainly true without the institutional rental sector, without um, companies set up specifically to build and maintain rental accommodation, we're unlikely to have long-term rents because we have a situation where typically it's uh, smaller, uh, often amateur, I don't mean that as a value judgment, just as a description, mm. amateur landlords who have one or two properties. And of course, you always have these clauses in there that, you know, if you need it back for family use, you can take it back, all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you're an institutional landlord, you have no niece going to UCD in uh, September. So that kind of situation just doesn't arise. And that third of people that you're talking about that are renting in in, in, in Dublin, I'm, I'm one of that third, by the way, that you're talking about actually renting a property for seven years. So so double the average that you're talking about. But I mean, is is that down to the fact that these are people who they haven't, they just haven't bought their own property or they're, they're in that position where they're looking to buy? Is, is that who's, who falls into, into that category? I, I think it, it comes down to two main groups. One group are renting for life cycle reasons, what you might call life cycle reasons. So they're uh, students or young professionals and owning is not really uh, on their horizon um, because of, of where they are in life. The second group uh, in Ireland, certainly at the moment, are disproportionately people who would ideally like to own but are not yet in a position to, for example, save for a deposit. And and here we have to remember, we often talk, and you hear it in policy debates, about you know uh, certain kinds of landlords are, are, are privileged and they don't pay any tax, whatever. The most tax-privileged landlord is the landlord you are to yourself if you're an owner. You don't pay any capital gains tax on your property. You don't pay any income tax on the rent you pay to yourself. You know, in, in kind of level playing field terms, there, in Ireland, there's no competition in terms of owning your own place or, or renting your own place uh, from a, a tax advantage point of view. And for that reason, most renters uh, beyond a certain point in their life would ideally like to own if they could. We can change that. We can we can level the playing field so that, as in some other countries, uh, if you decide to save for the future not in your own property, but through, for example, a, a pension fund, as they would do in some of the Germanic countries, we, we could do that. But at the moment, we have a system, a tax system that's set up um, that overwhelmingly favours people who own their own homes as opposed to rent their own homes. And for that reason, most people, when they get to a certain stage in life, would ideally like to own. And that one third of the sector that you talk about, how does that compare, for instance, to other countries? Because a lot of other EU countries, Ronan, they tend to have a much um, larger proportion of their sector that's made up by kind of these long-term renters. That's right. So, uh, I mean, in particular, in Germany, Austria and Switzerland, they have a, a different culture around this. They don't privilege home ownership the same way, uh, say, the UK and Ireland and the United States do. Um, and as a result, if, you, uh, if you're a renter or an owner-occupier, you face kind of very similar um, conditions, and for that reason, they end up with perhaps twice as many, uh, in terms of a fraction, twice as many people renting um, as in, in in Ireland. So you could have uh, two thirds of people in cities um, as renters. But we should also not overstate it. Uh, in the vast majority of European countries, with the exception of a of, of, of few, like I named, uh, uh, home ownership 
tends to dominate over renting. Um, so Ireland has, and this is kind of, people don't really think about this, Ireland has one of the lowest rates of home ownership in Europe. Um, so we have a fraction of renters that is, that is higher than most countries in Europe. Uh, Germany, Austria and Switzerland are certainly uh, well ahead of us on the percentage at rent front. Um, but Ireland, the UK, France and Denmark are kind of in the next group. Um, and then you have a bunch of countries in uh, Central and Eastern Europe that have significantly higher uh, owner occupancy rates. Often there you'd have 90% of people would be owner occupiers. And is, why is that, Ronan? I mean, the question here, I guess, is what should it be? What fraction of the population should be renting? And, and I guess we don't know the, the answer to that. I suspect that actually if you've got 90% of your population uh, owner occupiers, you're probably too high uh, in that you reduce mobility. If you've got a level playing field, if people can rent and save for the future in the same way that people perceive they can own their own home and save for their future um, and have security in that um, in that home, uh, then actually renting is, is, is probably better off because if, if circumstances change, if your employment changes, you are, you're free to move. If your circumstances change, if you have kids and then they move out and you want to downsize, it's easier to do so as a renter than as an owner-occupier. So from a mobility point of view, uh, having a third of your population renting is certainly not uh, wrong or undesirable. Um, but th- that's, a, that's a decision that we as a society get to make. We get to decide whether we want a level playing field between renters and owner-occupiers or whether we want to uh, privilege one group instead of another. And in terms of the, the COVID-19 pandemic, Ronan, and the fact that so many people are you know working from home, working remotely at the moment, do you think is this an opportunity or a time where people might start to kind of assess the living conditions that they're in and, and, and maybe start looking at other options? I mean, I certainly think it's 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 good a good time to take stock, um, both for individuals and for society as a whole. Uh, what what I would be careful of is um, fighting the last war. So, uh, for example, if if you look back over the last ten plus years, uh, I think too much time or too much attention was 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 spent on solving the problems that caused the global financial crisis in 2005, 6, 7, and not being aware of potential uh, other potential issues that would be, might be coming down the line. Um, so uh, my worry would be we could spend the next 10 years uh, trying to prevent the next pandemic from breaking out when actually there's another issue, climate change or something else I haven't even thought of, um, that, that, is the, that is the next major issue to face the housing system. Um, so that's not to say we, we ignore what's happening. Of course we don't. Um, but it's, we shouldn't think of what's happening now as the way it's going to be permanently into the future. Um, and, you know, when we think of, say, COVID-19 or pandemics more generally, you can kind of put it on a spectrum uh, from, say, uh, Nazi bombings in World War II, I'll explain this in a second, through to something like um, uh, risk of flooding. And if you think about risk of flooding, we should be designing our, our homes so that they're resilient to flood risk, and flood risk is likely to increase over coming decades. Um, if you were having this conversation in you know, just after World War II or indeed during World War II and saying we need to make our homes resilient to um, blitzing from the Nazi armies, that's, that's not exactly an issue that's, that should be happening at some point in the future. So what we need to decide, that's not for an economist to do, that's for an epidemiologist to do, is to, to how likely is it for these kinds of issues to, to come up again in five years, 20 years, 50 years? Mm. Um, because... Humans love to cluster together. That's, we're social creatures. We've always been social creatures. And we want to come 
and live in cities. We want to come and work and play in cities. And, and I don't think we should be trying to design a system that puts us into units that we never have to interact with each other. Okay. We want to try and design as a system that allows us to interact safely with each other. Trinity College Dublin economist Ronan Lyons, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're very welcome back to the final part of News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we're continuing our discussion today, looking at the change in living accommodation in this country and in particular in urban areas, everything from new home sizes, rental accommodation. And we're asking today, has the COVID-19 pandemic changed how people want to live? Well, for more on this, we're joined now on the line by uh, Neve Hurricane, who's a professor at the Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. Neve, can I just ask you, first of all, um, looking at some, some recent figures, that show that about Irish people are the least likely to live in flats or in apartments in Europe by comparison with other EU countries. Why is that? I suppose the first thing, Andrea, I think it's critical to to maintain a historical perspective on this in the sense that there's actually quite a strong history um, of high-density living amongst the less advantaged or socioeconomically deprived stratas of Irish society. So, you know, if we look at people who who moved into public housing in the 60s and 70s in Ireland, in many cases, those families came from tenements, which were overcrowded and highly dense. um, And and that was going on right up to the 1960s. So there actually is uh, a history of living in high-density housing in Ireland. The problem was that the experiences of many of those people who who lived in those high-density entities were quite negative. And that negative impression wasn't necessarily improved when new blocks of high-density housing were built in parts of Dublin in the 60s and 70s onwards. Um, so I suppose there's a, 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 a kind of a negativity or a stigma historically to some of that high-density stuff. I have to say that I feel in terms of the broader trajectory in terms of housing and the Irish population today, I, I don't actually think that the... Uh, issues around density are related to that because I think there's plenty of evidence that when high quality dense accommodation is provided given the extent and extremity of demand really in the Irish housing market people are are very happy to live in in those contexts I, I think you know if we had a lot more apartments in our cities in the morning they'd be fully occupied very quickly and many people would be very glad to get them I think the, 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 there's two issues to it. I, I think, first of all, because there still remains, to, I think, distortions in our property market in terms of what are the old land league issues of fair rents and fixity of tenure. So if we look at European cities where high dense uh, models of housing have been successful, and by and large, these are mostly occupied by people who are tenants rather than owners, it is because they have security of tenure, so they're in those places for the long haul. The second piece, Andrea, and I think it's a critical piece, and it's one that we've had a poor history of in Ireland, is that a critical piece of the success of high-density housing is what we call livability. So if you're living in a small, enclosed space, Um, Certainly in the Irish context, we would still have many apartments that don't even have balconies. So then outdoor space becomes really important. Amenities become really important. Transport becomes really important. And unfortunately, many of our cities, even those which have the high-density accommodation within them, are still clogged with cars 
the, you know, the, the routes for pedestrians and cyclists are very limited. Certainly outside of Dublin, the public transport in some of our cities, like Limerick and Galway in particular, is quite limited. Um, so all of that, I think, contributes to, I, I think, the challenges that people see with mm. uh, high-density accommodation. Okay, so, so there is a sort of a, there's historical context to all of this. But, I mean, I know of my own kind of life stage as well, Neve, and even from, you know, talking to my own friend group. And look, there's all, also practicalities, I'm sure, to all of this too, if people have, if they're married, if they have two or three kids, or people living with other people. There is sort of still a sense that people feel this, I don't know if right is the right word, or entitlement is the right word, but people certainly have this desire to want to have, you know, the three and the four bed semi-D or detached home with the back garden and the front drive-in, you know, driveway for their car as well. And and I just wonder how that fits by comparison to other countries. Um, I suppose, I, I think there there is, I mean, we, we have to remember that in terms of Ireland, our, the history of our suburbs compared to the history of many other European states and in, in, indeed the United States is relatively recent. You know, most of our suburbs in Ireland date from the post-World War II era, um, and, and by and large, the, you know, the research, there's been one or two large-scale uh, sociological studies on suburban living in Ireland. Um, one, of, one of the things that, that comes out of it is, first of all, that we have historically, and we, you know, I think that the challenges and the weaknesses of our planning, successive planning frameworks have been well documented. But one of the things we tend to do is we tend to put the residential accommodation in place before we put in the amenities, before we put in the shops and the schools and the buses. And um, certainly the first wave historically of people who moved into suburbs also found it quite challenging because of those lack of amenities. And in many cases, it was those communities who campaigned for and put those amenities in place, you know, you know, as a consequence of, of their own demands and, and their own activities. Um, I, I think there is also a, an issue about the life course and about family formation. One of the things that we've historically seen in Ireland is that family sizes in Ireland are slightly bigger than family sizes in many continental European contexts. And, and the size of your family does create pressures on the space. And I think that's, some, that's a piece of the housing debate that hasn't really been considered, that if, if we are moving towards higher density housing and if we are going to be encouraging families to live in higher density housing, what may the potential impacts of that be on family formation? I have to say, Andrea, that I think everything that's happened in the recent weeks has put an enormous emphasis again on space and privacy as, I suppose, stratas around which inequality is built I think this has particularly become the case for people who are home working, but also people who are trying to homeschool children. Um, mm. Aside from the digital divide, I think the emphasis on space and privacy has, has become absolutely enormous and, and an enormous I suppose, divider um, in terms of people's experiences of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think we're going to see a greater demand and a greater emphasis even within high density housing for livable spaces, high quality spaces and relatively large spaces by the, you know, the, the sizes of, of apartments generally yeah. across Western Europe. Just when you're talking about the kind of high density living, um, Neve, is there a best model or is there any, you know, urban centre or city, whether it be in Ireland or across Europe or right across the world, that maybe we can look to as sort of, you know, the, the best example of how that's carried out at the moment? Well, some of the best examples in terms of, of housing, I suppose, uh, tenanted housing 
you know, which is high density and seems to be relatively successful. Um, we see in Austria, and the Austrian model is one that's been cited um, quite frequently in Ireland because tenants there have this fixity of tenure. And one of the things that we see with tenants is that if they do believe that they're in a community for a long time, they will buy into that community. They will input there and seek to make life richer and more rewarding there. One of the problems historically in the Irish rental market has been is because we we have struggled and really have failed to provide fixity of tenure for tenants. Tenants feel quite rightly that they can be moved on relatively quickly and therefore they tend not to invest that much in community life essentially in their local areas. Um, And that then becomes extraordinarily challenging in a situation like you've had in the last couple of weeks where people really are are incredibly dependent on the quality of life in their local communities for their overall um, life experience. Um, So some other examples that have been looked at are in Finland and also in Amsterdam, particularly in relation to transport and transport links and accessibility uh, for pedestrians and cyclists. So all of these issues have come into play, um, but we really have to tackle, in my view, you know, in some ways, I, I think the housing density issue can become a bit of a red herring because I certainly there's such an enormous demand, particularly amongst young people, for affordable housing in urban areas. And, and many of those people are quite happy with apartment accommodation. Um, that I, I think the, the much bigger issue is essentially the distortions in the overall housing market in Ireland at the moment and the failure to provide affordable accommodation for so many socioeconomic strata of, of Irish people. Neve, in terms of the government formation, obviously the talks that are continuing at the moment, I mean, what do you see as sort of the key priorities that the next government should prioritise now when they come in, in in addressing this? Because obviously housing at all areas and all elements is, is going to be a key focus of that. Yeah, I, I think it was a very interesting general election campaign, in some ways more interesting now because it took place before the COVID-19 pandemic. And we really saw housing and health uh, be foregrounded, which are both quality of life issues as opposed to, for want of a better word, financial issues. Um, And we saw, I think, very significant momentum build up around then. It's very striking from my point of view that um, some of the things which government had previously stated were impossible, like, for instance, uh, a rent freeze or a ban on evictions, were then introduced very quickly as part mm. of the response to the pandemic crisis. Um, I think they were very welcome. I think they were very badly needed. I think this will create a potential credibility crisis for a government down the line who then returns to the position that those things are impossible or unconstitutional for a whole variety of reasons. Um, one of the things that we've seen during the COVID uh, pandemic has been the willingness of states to essentially push back against the market, which has been something that I think we can see a a desire for um, uh, in in voters uh, in the run-up to this general election. And and the state kind of returning to its its larger regulatory role, I think in the in the post-COVID, and I, can't, I don't even think we can say we're in post-COVID yet, but I, I think in the, in the next six months to 12 months, not just in Ireland, but across the Western world, we'll see a continuing expectation that states will hold the line here and that they will provide and prioritise uh, good quality accommodation. I think it's important to remember, Andrea, that we, even in the, the next 12 months, we are looking at a scenario where children will still probably be spending more time at home, engaged in home schooling, and many more people will be working remotely from home. So the issues around home, 
privacy and space are going to be right at the top. And it's very interesting, actually, if you look at the history of, of plagues and pandemics, by and large, they are generally followed by um, periods of considerable political and social turmoil mm-hmm. because certain issues come into focus in a way that they haven't been come into focus before. There's no reason, I think, why this pandemic should be any different. And therefore, if I was anybody involved in politics at the moment, I think you'd be having the housing issue very centrally on your radar. Yeah, and just to suppose finally, I mean, one of the the points we were talking about um, earlier today, and I know that you mentioned it as well, Neve, is maybe what people see is the priorities now in looking for a home, whether that be, you know, the apartment or the duplex or the, 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 the single house or the semi-D or whatever it is that, you know, while we might never go through something like this again in our lifetime, or hopefully not anyway, in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, but people's priorities in terms of the stuff that they want and whether that be the outdoor space, the amenities, the balcony, the little bit of garden, whatever, that those things have all changed. And it'll be interesting to see how that might actually affect the market. It will. The other piece that I think will also affect the market is an, it's up on one of the uh, government websites is the National Broadband Map, uh, where you look at the places where broadband is strong and, and broadband is weak. So even though paradoxically, I think while people in the commuter belt outside of Dublin, the kind of mid-east, for want of a better word, would in many cases, I think, be happier to stay at home and work from home rather than do that long commute into Dublin. I think as you move further out, from that place, if you look at parts of uh, West Cork and West Kerry, where broadband connectivity is very poor, I think you may see people thinking twice about moving or building in those areas, given the, the experiences that we've had in the pandemic. So I think there's going to be a very complex response and a complex impact on the housing market in the next 12 months as a result of these crises, which are very much linked mm-hmm. essentially to the sociology of it. Professor Neve Hurgan, who's a pre- the uh, professor at uh, Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. Um, Neve, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the show, you can still listen back to the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. My thanks as always to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with uh, Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6 and with a between the lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.